Welcome to the Real Estate Roundtable Podcast, where we sit down with some of the most successful real estate agents, brokers, and team leaders to learn about their journeys in this industry. I'm your host, Art Batuzzi, and as a seasoned real estate agent of 29 years, I'm always fascinated by the stories of how others found success in this business. On this podcast, we'll be talking to our guests about the obstacles they overcame, the lessons they learned, and the tips and strategies they're using in today's ever-changing market. Whether you're a real estate agent, broker, team leader, investor, or just someone interested in real estate, you're in the right place. Our guests come from a variety of backgrounds and they all have unique insights to share. We wanna have fun with these interviews, but we also wanna make sure that you come away with actionable tips that you can implement in your own business. New episodes will be released weekly, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us on the Real Estate Roundtable Podcast. Let's get started. Hey, it's Art Batuzzi with the Real Estate Roundtable Podcast. Hey, this is part two of my interview with Sharon Rizzo. As you know, if you listen to part one, Sharon has been in the business for a long time and has done, she's done billions of dollars worth of business. And so our conversation led me to split this into two parts. So I hope you enjoy part two as much as I enjoyed interviewing Sharon. Thank you for listening. April of 2020 through April of 2021, we had that year where, you know, everybody wasn't sure how real estate was going to work because we had the lockdown, right? But then it sort of blew up, didn't it? In, well, that's, but the, you're you're right, and and it did because everybody now all of a sudden because of COVID, they wanted to. A lot of people wanted to get out of the city. They wanted more space. They were working from home now. I mean, who thought that? I mean, we weren't doing Zoom calls as much as we are now. Now everybody's used to it. We're all doing that, and people wanted that extra office in the home. They wanted more space outside, a yard and all of the things that were not necessarily the case before COVID. So that's why the single family market just exploded during that time. And so brokers who were focusing on single family homes in the suburbs, which we really weren't, but some of my team were, they were selling like crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's when we were seeing, you know, homes being sold in hours Hours, or a day or two. Or before it even went on the market. Right. But at full, more than full ask, five, 10, 20, $50,000 over. Right. Exactly. It it just, you know, it, it sort of had that runaway train feel. You know, in terms of people just were were fighting with each other to get these properties and overbidding each other. And like you said, knocking out some of the different clauses that a seller would not like. And then we also saw a lot of, of cash deals too, right? Oh, I was just going to say it almost had to be a cash deal 
with significant earnest money, very often taking out, which, you know, I can take out an inspection call, clause on a condominium. That's one thing because you have a whole management company, you have a whole association, you have insurance on the common elements, but I hate to remove an inspection clause on a single family home because you could run into a cracked foundation or certain serious problems that maybe only a professional inspector can figure out. So that's a little dangerous. I mean, to remove an inspection clause, I think on a single family home. But people were also doing, do you know what an escalation clause is, Art? You probably- I do, but why don't you explain it yeah. to our an listeners? An escalation clause would be where you uh, would have a, a writer to the contract saying, I will increase my offer $1,000, for example, if you have another bidder, I will always go $1,000 over that up to a certain point. Obviously, you're going to have your max, but maybe maybe the house is listed at, say, $600,000. you are willing to pay $630 for it, so you're going to have an escalation clause up to that, and then if someone bid 100, $632, you are done. But um, people were doing that and actually putting the escalation clause right as part of the contract, as an addendum to the contract, and things that we just had not seen much of before uh, COVID because of everybody was flocking to, to buy a single family home with more space. And now that I'm working from home, I'm just not comfortable in a two-bedroom condo. I want at least a three or four-bedroom home. And so that's what fueled the run-up during from April of 2020 to April of 2022. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. And and then we've had, you know, pretty much like you said, about the last nine, 10 months, we've had the interest rates going up to something I learned from Santo many years ago to what is more normal levels. Because from 2009, 10, through literally 2017 or 18, those rates were arbitrarily being held low, right? Yes, very low. I mean, really up to much later than 2017, really up until um, 2022. I mean, you could still get a loan in the threes uh, not very long ago. And right. uh, so uh, really, if you take the average of what interest rates were, they're right around, it's right around where they are right now. But of course, people who weren't around at that time, who are not my age, are not going to remember that. So these seem so arbitrarily high, which actually they're not. But I do think they will. Now that inflation is starting to get a little bit more under control, I do think we'll see the Feds lower those interest rates uh, Let's see, by the end of the year, I think we'll see a difference, a significant difference. Well, it's interesting because when I started, I think interest rates were in the nines, maybe high eights, low nines, right? And and we just, <laughs> that's what we had. We, we no. didn't know any difference. And so people did this. And today we have this generation of people who have grown up with these twos and threes and <laughs> low fours. And they're like, oh, Six percent. Oh, oh, this is terrible. This is, I'm like, this is fine. What are you talking about? <laughs> and you can always refi. 
you can always right. refinance if uh, if the rates do come down. So really, when you look at it, it's probably always a good time to buy if you can, um, because right now you can still get a good deal out there if you look hard enough and you can always refinance later, you know, when the interest rates come down, which we certainly expect them to, I think by the end of the year, certainly into early 2024. Yeah, I think that that's true too. And and there's multiple sources that have been cited saying the same thing. You know, they believe that rates, you know, are where they are and that they'll drop. They're not going to go back to threes, but they they may be in the fives. Right. You and know? maybe if we're lucky, maybe a little bit lower. I mean, aren't you, this is before you started, but I was in the business in the early 80s when the interest rates actually got up to 20%. I mean, that was crazy to where uh, you had to really do seller financing. I mean, people just could not pay those high rates. I actually was dumb enough to buy an investment property with 17 and a half percent rate and still ended up making money on it, believe it or not, even at 17 and a half percent. But we were, you know, even then uh, you could still do well at, at crazy rates, but that's when everybody was doing land contracts. You were doing uh, forms of seller financing, trying to to get around that. But when you when you're used to that, and then very commonly at seven and three quarters was a very typical rate. Then uh, you would uh, these rates just don't seem that high to me. Right, I agree with you. When people come into my class, are like, "Oh, these rates are so high." I'm like, eh, "This is nothing. <laughs> relax, relax." relax. It's a little higher than what it was before. And the bottom line is people still need a place to live, right? Yes, of course. And so, you know, although it may be pushing some people towards rentals, but if you ask me, the rental market in the city, in Chicago, has gone absolutely bonkers. Oh my gosh, the rental market. And again, that's why the deconversion market is so good because you're taking a condo and turning it into a rental and the rental market is just crazy. I mean, it's it, it may be a slow down a little bit from what it was, but really not much. Uh, and uh, it, it, they rent quickly. They're renting for more money and it happened very fast because not too long ago, the rental market went way down and now it's way up again. Uh, so the rental market is doing extremely well in downtown Chicago. In downtown Chicago. Actually. Well, and it's really funny too, because when I think back to when I started and we used to do the rent versus buy comparison, uh, right? And we would get people coming in that were spending $1,000 in rent, and we had to convince them, eh, it's okay to be able to buy a property, we're going to spend $1,200 to own it, right? And, and I would be licking my chops today with the people who are spending three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 a month in rent. Oh, because. Exactly. Even though the rental market is still doing well, I mean, it's doing well, but it still makes much more sense to buy. Even if you broke even, uh, I know I have a friend in California who's spending $12,000 a month on a 
three bedroom house that's okay. I don't think it's all that special. It's nice, but nothing great. Would probably rent for four or five thousand a month here at most. She's spending twelve thousand dollars a month, and so at the end of the year, she spent one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars. And even so, if you bought that and even broke even, you're still one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars ahead, plus your tax rate, a tax break, your mortgage pay down, um, and uh, and building up obviously some equity from the mortgage pay down. But oh my gosh, uh, uh, I still think it's much much better to buy of course. And so with your current team, do you do you guys spend much time talking about the rent versus buy comparison and how to how to get people to want to buy? You know, it's I think people are pretty well educated on that a little bit more than they used to be, so I'm finding that we don't have to convince people as much. I think you'll find the people who are renting are people who really have no choice. They just don't have any down payment at all. Uh, for various reasons and really do need to rent. They still have a high credit score. But overall, I think people still want to buy and still want to live the American dream if you possibly can. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. When when your current team is is out there, what do you what what kind of issues are they running into that you as the manager or the rainmaker of the team is is you know, you're dealing with what kinds of problems or issues that are coming up um, that may either be the same or different than what used to come up? Well, a lot of it is what we've already talked about a little bit, Art. I think one, one of the big problems, I have uh, a gentleman right now who has an investor who wants to buy a lot of townhomes in this one area in the Western suburbs. He's managed to get him two, but again, running into the, the numbers work so well uh, because this is about a $300,000 price range, but you've got low assessments, low taxes out there. So the return, the rate of return on the investment is very high, but other investors have wised up as well. So he's running into huge competition, uh, driving the price up a little bit higher than he would like and also running into multiple offers. So that's what a lot of my team who are focusing on single family homes, which a lot of them do, a lot of them uh, are do work in the burbs. So as we touched on that before, so they're running into uh, multiple offers of, again, very low inventory. Um, and that's where the experience of being able to focus on investment and creating your own deal and that's why at the end of uh, my meeting, my team meetings, which we have a team meeting once a month that we put a lot of thought into, and I go through the MLS and pick out the deals of the month that I think are particularly well-priced. Maybe you have a highly motivated seller uh, in that for that particular unit, whatever it might be. Uh, and I want my team to focus on those and go out and get a buyer for it. Because now you've got the product, you've got a listing, if you will, even though it's not yours, but you've got something that you can focus on. And uh, so a lot of them are doing that. And we were trained, you know, to do that early on to, you know, what can the real estate do for you? Uh, how do you want to expand your portfolio, your uh, investment portfolio? So uh, I try to come up with some deals that I think are particularly enticing, really good so that they can 
uh, focus on those because there's so little inventory out there right now. That is the biggest challenge, Art, right now is just the the lack of inventory, and which leads, of course, then to so many people bidding on the same unit. Again, particularly right. on single-family homes, even single-family homes in this in the city are running into that a little bit more so than condominiums. Really? All right. So. And again, that might be a carryover from COVID because they want that single family home for the additional space. Are you finding sellers are still being a little bit unrealistic in terms of their pricing? I haven't run into that quite so much. Uh, I, I don't think there's been, there's probably been an increase overall. I think it's about 15% again in the suburbs, maybe mm -hmm. on the North Shore in particular in the last four years, say, but condominiums downtown in the last four years, not so much, maybe even a slight decrease since 2019. Got it. It's just, it was, you know, it's been my impression that, you know, sellers, you know, riding the high of, of 2020 to 2022 were, were, you know, putting their houses on the market and when they weren't selling, you know, at these prices that they think they want, when they weren't selling in hours or days, they're like, well, what's wrong with you as a real estate broker? Why can't you get me those prices? Well, that, and, as a uh, listing agent, that was a little bit of a challenge. That, that was a challenge for sure. So you have to just be really good at knowing the market, uh, at being able to give the correct comps so that they can truly understand uh, this and also, of course, you run into appraisal issues if they're if they're really going. Oh, all of a sudden, there's no inventory, so I'm going to price my my house seventy five thousand dollars over market, which I might just be able to get if you get lucky and get a cash deal to where you don't have to worry about a, uh, about an appraisal. But if you get a traditional buyer who's putting 20, 25 percent down, uh, that's going to be an issue if the comps just don't support it. So you have to know how to educate the seller as well. But that that has been uh, a little bit of a challenge for some of my team. You're absolutely right. One other thing, too, that I was thinking about, because you mentioned some of the things that we never did before. Um, appraisal gap waivers. Is that something that you ran into when you in this most recent market before, you know, the last six or nine months? Uh, not appraisal gap waivers per se, but just trying to educate the sellers on the fact that the appraisal could be an issue. So, uh, we're probably running into escalation clauses more often, which I mentioned earlier, um, removing inspection clauses, which I hate for a single, we'll do for a condo single family home, I think is a different issue. Um, again, coming up with more earnest money initially so that the balance of earnest money, uh, you might not even have a balance. They might come up with so much upfront that it's enticing. And like you mentioned as well, uh, people coming up, somehow coming up with more cash offers, whether they're borrowing it from a family member or whatever, but they know they're not going to get the house unless they do. Right. Okay. So I was thinking about this. Um, as the rainmaker on your team, what qualities are you looking for in somebody that you're going to bring onto your team? What what's the what's going to take? What's it going to take for me to get on Sharon Rizzo's team? That's what I want to know. 
Well, it wouldn't take much for you, Art, because I <laughs> know you so well. Uh, I generally don't hire new agents simply because I, I'm so focused on the entire team and, and spending a lot of time on that, that to spend time with a new agent is just very difficult. So I do not take new agents as a general rule. Um, just to give you an example, uh, I think it's a challenge because you're, you're an independent contractor and it's easy to get lazy because you really don't have someone over you all the time who's you know, cracking the whip, if you will. So it's easy to get a little bit lazy and not do the basics that all of us have been taught so well. To give you an example of that, the past year or so has been particularly challenging because of low inventory. So uh, most teams, uh, even at Compass, who were number one brokerage in the city, uh, we didn't have our, our best year. Even though we were very high in the state, we didn't have our best year, which means that other teams did not as well. And uh, a lot of that is because agents are not doing the basics. You get a little bit lazy. And even though our team might not have performed as well as we normally do because of the low inventory, I had one agent on my team who does it all right, Art. And she had her best year in 2022 when most agents had maybe their worst year in a while. And that's because guess what she does? She has three client appreciation parties uh, every year. She has coaching, personal coaching uh, from an excellent coach. She still networks and belongs to networking groups who give each other referrals. She not only does email, uh, uh, she sends out emails to, for example, her sphere of influence on a regular basis, her newsletter, but she sends that newsletter out physically as well so that people are most likely, and, and with a personally addressed envelope, she does all of the basics, everything that you should be doing, calls her sphere of influence on a regular basis, goes out of her comfort zone, which I like to you know, stretch that rubber band. It's like a rubber band going out of your comfort zone. If you stretch it long enough, guess what? That now becomes your comfort zone. So what was not your comfort zone now becomes your comfort zone. And if you do all of those basics, you will always do well in this business, but most people do not. And that's why this one agent, I just like to talk about her because she had her best year in 2022 and she's been in the business 15 years and she's wow. still doing those basics. So uh, that is just so crucial. And it's tough to be disciplined enough to do all of that when you, you know, are not in a nine to five situation where someone's cracking the whip all the time, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because I do know that your father was a longtime Hall of Fame basketball coach on the at the Indiana uh, high school level. And there's a great analogy in terms of what you're talking about in basketball, right? It's the fundamentals. Correct. Oh, fundamentals. Oh, absolutely. My father preached that. I used to hear that word all the time. Fundamentals. Absolutely. So the fundamentals of real estate uh, uh, apply here. All of those things that a lot of us don't want to do, but uh, uh, you really need it. Whenever you're in a slump, and I used to 
but occasionally when I was with American Vesco, even before I was in management, I would hit a slump and I would think, what can I do to get out of that? And I would fall back to basics, you know, calling my sphere and doing all of the things that we're supposed to be doing. And it would pick up almost immediately. So it is really important to focus on that. I think another thing that I like to try to, and I think this is where maybe the manager in me comes out, and I'm sure you, you've had so much experience in management as well, is to think, lean into your agent's strengths. What would be your niche? What, you know, whether that's maybe commercial, maybe you, you're a guy who's really great with numbers or whatever, and maybe you should be focusing a little bit more on commercial. And I have two of my team members who are doing just that. We've now joined CoStar, which is a sort of a commercial MLS, and they're, they're getting more involved in that. And then you might have someone who's strength, strength like Santo, who's never really done anything. He's never done, uh, I mean, who's never done anything other than investment. He's never done general brokerage. That's not his thing. But someone whose strength is that, you, you would want to lean into that. Uh, and so whatever that particular strength is of that agent, try to figure it out and have them expand on that and then get out of their comfort zone a little bit in, you know, whatever that is. So uh, that's one thing that I've learned with having a team is to try to approach it on an individual basis. What is their strength? What is their weakness? What do they need to do to get uh, better and uh, focus on that? Do you think that somebody new coming into this business today has a, a great opportunity to be successful? Yes, I do because of technology. Oh my gosh, the tech, I mean, DocuSign, for example. Uh, I know we were talking about how, you know, the personal touch with the, with the contract versus the computer, but uh, yes, if, if someone really, someone who maybe in my day earlier would not have been successful, might be able to be successful today if they're really technologically inclined and utilizes all of that technology. Uh, I, I So I do think that with the proper guidance, with learning all of the technology, uh, you can be successful today. And a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, team leaders now are buying Zillow leads, for example, and spending a fortune on it, uh, but they are successful because of it. I have not done that, but I do know of several teams who are very successful doing that and then handing those leads out to their to their team on which they have to pay a very healthy referral fee by the way of course hey there real estate roundtable podcast listeners i want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor i love real estate school if you're looking to get your real estate license or fulfilling your continuing education requirements i love real estate schools got you covered as an Illinois licensed school, they offer the state required broker pre-license course, managing broker pre-license courses, post-licensing courses, and continuing education. And the best part, you can take the courses either through their live stream with the live instructor or online home study. So no matter where you are, you can get the education you need to take your real estate career to the next level. I Love Real Estate School is committed to helping you succeed in the industry. That's why they offer comprehensive 
high quality education at an affordable price. So if you're ready to start your real estate journey or stay up to date with your continuing education, head on over to iloverealestateschool.com today to learn more. Um, so in the technology vein, and again, I know where we come from, in your opinion, how has social media really impacted our ability to help people buy and sell real estate? I think it has impacted. In fact, uh, we had a team meeting yesterday and my, I have a social media director who works for me pretty much full time and she does all of our Instagram posts and uh, certain videos and everything. I think particularly now video content is very important, very important on Instagram. And a lot of agents will tell you that they think a lot of their leads do come from social media. Uh, you can advertise on Facebook, for example, now. You, uh, and you need to have a social media presence, I think, to, um, there are some people I, I was going to say to be successful in this business, but I do know some people who you know, are so into the basics that maybe does not involve social media that they're still successful. But I still think it can help you be that much more successful if you do have a social media presence and particularly if you uh, use a lot of video content yourself. So I think that's important. Well, especially for a new person, because I'll get people coming into class that will say, you know what, I hear, I've hear i been hearing about this sphere of influence stuff. Some people say, don't bother your sphere of influence because you're just being a pest. And boy, was that beat out of me 29 years ago, wasn't it? I disagree with pestering your sphere of influence. Uh, I, I know I, I've made the mistake many times, and maybe you have too, Art, where I had someone I, I did. I felt, oh, I'm being a pest. And what did I find out? They used someone down the street because I wasn't bothering them. That person right. down the street was sending them mailing after mailing and calling and calling, and they were the most top of mind person. So uh, that is absolutely something that is very important. And, you know, again, technology has changed the way that we touch our sphere of influence. In fact, I think it makes it so much easier today. Oh, so much easier, yes. Right? Because oh. we used to call and we used to do pop buys, which I still like that whole concept, but more that to stay top of mind, you get them on a drip campaign where you're sending them a newsletter or you're sending them an article or you're you're sending them a birthday congratulations or and all of that could be done by the CRM systems that are now available to all of us. Exactly. Yeah, you get a good CRM going and the drip campaigns and uh, you also even the technology, for example, that we have at Compass it will actually tell you in your sphere who is most likely to sell next. Wow. And can figure that out. And uh, so you have to you go through your sphere and you it'll say most likely to sell. Maybe it's the number, the time uh, that, you know, they haven't, you know, when they bought five years ago or seven years ago or whatever it might be, you know, might be related to. But the technology is just off the charts now. 
with what you can do. So even agents that, like you said, might not have been able to succeed years ago, maybe without the personality and all of the, uh, like you have, I mean, you, you have an off the charts personality and you could relate so well to people. Uh, maybe someone who doesn't have as much of that might be able to make up for it with technology. So uh, I, if someone is smart and willing to work hard and has that passion and fire in the belly, that's the most important thing. If you have passion and fire in the belly, uh, you're usually going to make it in this business as long as you have a plan, you work the plan, you know what your destination is, you set your goals, all of those things that we have been taught for so long, right, Art? Yeah. And you incorporate those as well as the technology to go with it, and you're off to the races for sure. Yeah, I think that that's, that's very well said. And, you know, I think that the ability to keep in touch being as easy as it is, you know, sometimes leads new people to think all you're doing is sitting behind a computer. But really, this build this business is still pretty much a belly-to-belly business, isn't it? Exactly. No, it is. Absolutely. You know, you still, you can do a lot, certainly in terms of setting up appointments and things like that, that you can do from your iPhone texting and keeping in touch with people all of that is so much easier but at one point whether you still have to have that eyeball to eyeball contact i think it's still a people business you know like santa would say it's not a dog or cat business it's a people business you still have to connect with someone now sometimes you can do that on zoom uh you know and uh uh, I have been able to make sales that way, but for the most part, it's still still very much a people business. Uh, one of my pet peeves is commun- is the lack of communication, where uh, as broker to broker, for example, you'll work with a, a, a buyer and your buyer is, is chomping at the bit. They want to know if they've gotten that house and the listing broker on the other end just doesn't communicate. And it drives me crazy because you're trying to get information. You're the broker in between. Your buyer is now mad at you because you don't have information, but you're not getting it from the listing agent. So that listing agent, even if they don't have any information, should get back to you and say, you know, I'm, my seller is out of town or my seller's in Europe or whatever it might be. I'll be able to get back to you in two days. Then you can tell your buyer and communicate. But when you don't get communication on the other end, that is my pet peeve with certain brokers because they, if they don't have any information, they just don't communicate at all. And that to right. me is acceptable in this business. Communication is still a very big part of it, even with all of the technology we have at our disposal. Yeah, I think that that's very true. And again, the ease of which we can communicate today, like a quick text. You know, like, hey, my buyer, my sellers are are still, you know, thinking about it. Or like you said, my sellers are out of town or I'm trying to get a hold of myself. That that 30 second thing can ease the mind of a buyer client and it allows you to, you know, have that communication so that your buyer understands that you're doing what you can in that instance. Yeah, that you're at least doing what you can. I mean, you just don't want to let too much time. This is my pet peeve is I'm pretty good at it, but I learned the hard way. 
And that is letting too much time go by without communicating. Let's just say a seller right now, a seller who's really anxious to sell. They want to know what's going on. How was that last open house? How was that last showing? They want some kind of feedback, some kind of feedback. And maybe you've let a little bit too much time go by without giving them feedback, even if nothing is happening, Art. Even if nothing is happening, you should be calling them and saying, you know, maybe we should think about a price reduction, or maybe we need to stage your home, or maybe whatever it might be, but at least you've communicated. What you don't want to happen is to now be on, you always want to be on the offensive, again, to use a basketball term. You don't want to be on the defensive. And I remember once I let too much time go by with a seller and they were not happy and they called me and now I'm on the defensive and trying to, oh, oh yeah. And you're caught off guard. You're sort of stumbling around because you know, you should have called them. And so I learned, boy, I want to be on the offensive before I'm ever put on the defensive because they called me first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in your opinion, what's the number one skill that a real estate broker needs to have today? My first thought was communication skills. I, I, I still, I do think that's really important. Technology is important too, but if I had to say one, the ability to, to communicate well, I still think is one of the most important skills that a realtor have because if you can communicate well, you're communicating well on the phone, you can communicate well in person, which is still the most important one face-to-face. -face. And uh, even via text, have communicate, how, how do you write? You know, can you communicate your thoughts via text as opposed to just, okay, or something very, very simple, two-word two answers, that kind of thing. So I think all of that is, is important. Of course, having probably a fire in the belly and passion, you know, for the is, is up there as well, but uh, fire in the belly, passion, communication skills, very, very important. In your team or in your experience, and I realize you're not necessarily talking to new people. How do you get your people to communicate better? We have team meetings uh, that we try to emphasize that in, uh, but we only have those once a month. So if I sense that somebody is not producing or not uh, doing what they're supposed to be doing, and I do try to keep on top of everybody pretty well, I will, of course, nudge them along in the right direction. You know, I laughed when you said we only have those once a month. What, what's interesting is, is I know your reference, which is we used to have those sales meetings once a week. <laughs> once right? a Back week. In the day. Exactly. Exactly. Once a week for like, what well, it's two hours, two and a half hours on a Thursday morning, right? Oh, Thursday mornings. I remember those. That's right. And what's funny is, is that when somebody says, oh, my company requires that we come to a, a meeting or we're on Zoom for a meeting once a month. And, I, and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, I, that's just a lot of time. <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> If they only knew, if they only knew. That's One thing it. about doing it a little bit less often, Art, I actually thought it would have been nice if they did it every other weekend. I think maybe the attendance might have been better. It's, it is hard to come up with an excuse as to why you didn't attend. 
And the interesting thing is that I've even had people, that's why I do love Zoom, is that I've had people on vacation in California and Florida or wherever, and they'd still attend the meeting because uh, we're able to with, with the modern technology. So all of that is, you know, is again, something that makes our job much easier than it was before. Absolutely. Knowing what you know about real estate today, what would you tell yourself at the beginning of your career that you wish you would have known that you know now and go, man, I wish I would have known that when I first started. If you asked me if, if I had started more recently in the business, I would have I would have answered your question by saying I would have made it my business to know technology better so that I can do all of the things that I rely a little bit on my personal assistant to do. Uh, so that's how I would have answered that. But uh, because I always considered my communication skills pretty good, and that's one of the things that I think is the most important in this business, it's a little hard for me to, to go back that far and say, I wish I would have done something differently or wish I would have known, uh, known that, um, especially since we started in development. I think everything was kind of laid out for us in a little different manner than it would have been had we just started only in, in general brokerage. So I would tell you that, that the thing I learned from you and Santo is to, is to get out of my own way. And I think, you know, I may, you make up so much stuff in your head in terms of what people are thinking about you and what people want from you and all this and all that. And, and you know, it was really more just do the work and don't worry about what you think other people are thinking. Just get out of your own way and just let it sort of flow to you, you know? I mean, Santo used to say to me, you know, you you're going to help people make up their mind, but you don't know what they're going to say. So you have to help them. You can't assume that they're going to think what you want them to think. You have to help them in the direction that you want them to go. And I, you know, that's interesting that you say that, Art, because I think that you use the word assume. And I learned a big lesson about that you tend to do that. You put what you think someone should buy or someone should think. It's hard to get, like you say, out of your own way. And maybe that's one thing I would answer your question with going back. I would be a better listener. I think a, a much better listener getting out of my own way and not making assumptions. And that happened to me once, just a very, very brief story. I was working with a much older couple um, and, uh, we had been out and I thought, thought in quotes that I knew exactly what they wanted in, in, in a, in, in a condo. And they were looking for a condo on Lakeshore drive. And so we saw this, we were going to look at this one condo at 1400 North Lakeshore drive. I still remember it. <laughs> and they walked very slowly because they were probably in their 80s then and walked very, very slowly. I was much younger then. And, and there was a very long haul before this one condo that was vacant. And I had the keys. And I told them, I said, look, I'll go ahead and open the door and I'll run ahead of you. Just come on. And I ran down. I 
played with the lock, opened the door, and I had time to look in, and I decided that they would hate this unit. So I came this close to walking back down the hall, and they were only about halfway down the hall now, and saying, you know, let's just don't walk the rest of the way. Just forget it. You're not going to like this, and we'll go on to the next one. But I didn't do that at the last second second, literally did not do that. They went, they saw the condo that I thought they would hate. And guess what? That was, that was the one they ended up buying. So I learned a really good lesson from that. And that is never to assume what someone else is going to buy because you think, you know, what they're interested in. Uh, even though you've worked with them for a while, they, it can surprise you every single time. So like you say, it's a very good way of putting it. Kind of get out of your own way, get out of your own head and just take it a step at a time as you go along. So um, very, very interesting. Well, that's a great story because it really illustrates, you know, the fact that people like things that they told you they weren't gonna, right? You know, I want this, I want this, I want this. And then you go, well, this doesn't mean anything. I want that. That's it. That's the house for me. And you're like, what happened to all the stuff that you did that you wanted over here? What happened? Well, you know, that that, you know, that is very, very, very important. And another quick story along those lines, I had a uh, a girl I was working with, a young girl who was an opera singer and she wanted vintage and she wanted a big living room because she wanted a grand piano in there because she was a singer. And but she would not, I absolutely will not go north of 1600 North North. In other words, I want Lincoln Park or the Gold Coast. I am not going north of 1600. We looked everywhere. I could not find her in her price range, anything near vintage with a large living room with high ceilings and everything that she wanted. It, was, it just wasn't possible, except I knew that what she wanted was at a building called 4300 North Marine Drive vintage building with high ceilings, huge living room. So one day I had her in the car and I told her, I said, look, we're just going to go look at this just for fun. Close your eyes, humor me. I'm going to take you here, whether you like it or not, pretty much. I took her all the way north to 4,300 and guess what? That's the one she bought. So you, again, Sometimes, like you said, uh, you'll be surprised and you have to uh, do just the reverse of what I was talking about before. You have to maybe bring them out of their comfort zone and that becomes their comfort zone. So absolutely. Um, it's funny that you, you tell that story because um, an old friend of ours who is now passed, Jeannie Elbogen. Oh, I remember um, Jeannie well. Yes. Well, Jeannie used to have that saying that her nose would bleed if she got above 2000 north. Oh, yeah. She's like, I can't, I can't go any farther than 2000 north. Don't ask me. This is it. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, my office was well north of that. And uh, so I was pretty familiar with those northern addresses on Lakeshore Drive that uh, Jeannie would not would not go to generally. You would not go to them. That's absolutely true. All right. So then the last question that I have for you is with all of your experience, what advice would you give a brand new person getting into this business today? I would tell them probably to get on a good team because they're going to get a lot of mentorship. 
that they would not get otherwise. Uh, one thing about being on a really good team uh, in a really good company is you've got different levels of help that you normally would not have. For example, you have your team leader, which I am, uh, who's going to be there for you if you have any questions, but also if you have a great sales manager still there for you because technically he is responsible for every everything that's done in the office, even though you have team leaders. I don't have that level of liability on me that he does. So I think getting on, and teams didn't exist in my day before art. I mean, really teams are very, as far as big teams and my gosh, there's so many of them now. Compass has probably more teams than they do individual agents who are not on a team. So uh, that's really only been in the last six, seven years, really. 10 years ago, there were teams, but they were unusual. Now they're more the norm than not. So I would say get on a good team. Uh, you're going to have a lot of extra help. Um, you have team members, a team leader, a sales manager. So you've got all of this help versus if you're a sole agent, you're just going to have pretty much your sales manager. So you have two other levels, team members and a team leader. So that would be one thing I would advise. No technology, be very, very up on the latest technology so that you can take advantage of all of the, all of the technology that a good brokerage offers and be passionate about what you wanna do. This is what I wanna do and I'm going to have a plan. I'm gonna work that plan and I'm going to, to make it work. But if you have all of those things and get on a good team and a good brokerage, you're, you're going to be successful especially if you have good communication skills. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. You know, it's interesting to me that that we didn't have teams back then, but if you look at our condo conversion group, that was our team. It was a team. That that was a, a form of a team, right? Yeah. That I mean, we we're individual agents and everybody you know, to some degree was trying to, you know, make their mark and get their own. But the reality is, is that we, we were a team, we were a family to a great degree. You know, we lived and died because of the, the market, what we were doing in the market. And certainly the culture that we had at American Invesco in terms of we were together a lot. We were together a lot. And you're, you're right. That, that was our team Art, at, at that time. That was a team. Uh, and you had a lot of support. You had the sales manager, you had project manager, you know, the, the people within the office themselves. So everybody had a lot of uh, support. And you can have that same kind of feeling today. You know, there aren't any condominium conversions today, not like there were then. So you really don't have that developer experience, uh, except in rare instances now. Uh, so that's probably another reason why I think going on a team is a great experience now and very, very helpful. Well, I certainly can attest in my 29 year career, you know, how much having those different levels of people around us looking to make sure that we succeeded and, and, you know, there's, it's a business, 
And as I learned, as I became a project manager, what it cost to bring those people in the door. And then the, the cost of burning leads and which I didn't know when I started with you, you know, and, and we'd get those 18 people a day. uh, And it's like, all right, maybe one or two, you know, but you didn't realize as a salesperson, what it costs to bring that person in the door and and then you know what that meant to the project overall what it meant to the bottom line of the company and those were all things that i learned as i went along but were grounded in what i learned the time that i spent at 111 east chestnut with you and santo and des and nick jr and and the whole crew that we had of all the oddballs that we had stuffed <laughs> into that sales center. And, and you know, again, I cannot understate the amount of experience that I got that for, for some people today might take them, you know, decades. We got in a very, very short period of time based on what we were doing. And, and certainly one of the main leaders of that was you and Santo. We were talking about one interesting thing when you were talking about like how much it costs to get somebody in the door. Think about a developer today, Art. Remember then um, it cost, I think we spent $25,000 a month to advertise in the Tribune because we very often had full page ads and all of this. So that was a hundred thousand dollars a month where now all of that is gone, almost all of it. And it's practically free on the internet. And you're with a great website that you would develop, but with that cost, you can now with, with modern technology, a developer can uh, advertise so much more cheaply than, than then. So then we were, you're right. Very, very concerned about, you know, how much, how much was it costing per lead for somebody to come in? How many leads was somebody burning because they didn't close, you know, 20 in a row? Things like that were very important where now it's, it's a whole different ballgame, once again, due to technology. When I say that all the time in terms of if I spent the money that we spent on a Sunday full page ad, one, one Sunday, if we spent that on social media, we would own the market. You know something, you're right. If we spent that on uh, SEO, search engine optimization, oh my gosh. Yeah, we on Google. we sh- Facebook ads, Google. That. I mean, the money, I mean, people are like, oh, I'm spending, you know, $2.57 a lead. That's very expensive. <laughs> and I was like, okay, we used to spend 1200 bucks elite and not to get people in and then when it converted that conversion may have cost twenty twenty five hundred two thousand twenty five hundred dollars and you also have your uh you have a unique perspective actually that i don't have and that is because not only were you in sales management at times but you were also project manager and so you were more involved with the cost of everything involved in that project not just ads and whatever so you had a much you had a much better perspective on what what things cost certainly than I did as a sales manager even 
Yeah, that definitely was a great move for me because, like you say, as a sales manager, our job was just to get everybody to sell. And, you know, what is it going to take and what's my budget to be able to do certain things? As a project manager who's responsible for the whole thing, you know, being able to kind of see where one one cost leads to another opportunity or, you know, if I can do this or that, it will lower my cost per conversion. I mean, that certainly became something that that I enjoyed doing and and still was able to come at it from the sales point of view. And that's because I was trained by two of the best. Well, at, that's at real estate right. uh, having been trained in sales, then you can relate to the sales floor much better. I'm I'm not going to get into names now, but I can think of someone in particular who was a project manager uh, who was really quite a, a, actually a tyrant, I would call them because but they were never in sales just project management and could not relate to the salesperson the way that you could. So I think having that background in sales and going to project management made you a much better project manager than you would have been otherwise. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And and I will tell you, when I looked at the people who went into project management, they usually came from an accounting background. Yes, exactly. You know, number, number or bean counters, which you know, to some degree, you need to have on a project where you're managing millions and millions and millions of dollars. But I would tell you that I think our projects sold faster because we came at it from a sales point of view. We understood where to put our money to support the salespeople to then be able to get it done faster and with a better bottom line return. And pure basic sales, you know, sales training. Uh, I thought Santo was was excellent in that because he was always, how many no's will you take? You know, uh, he, he would, he, you know, what is the difference between someone who walks out with a contract and someone who doesn't? The salesperson makes the difference. And sometimes that can be, not taking the first no or the second or the third, it starts getting uncomfortable. You're getting out of your comfort zone, but the person who walks away with the contract, if you truly believe it's in their best interest, then it's much easier to sell if you truly believe it yourself. I know we bought in nearly every project that we ever managed because we thought, why should we be telling someone else to buy if we're not, you know, if we don't believe in it enough to buy ourselves. So. Uh, basic good sales training experience, I think, is so important. Being able to take the very objection that they're raising and ultimately turning it into the reason to buy, not the reason not to buy. Right. And uh, all of that is a lot of the basics that we all learned, and uh, it's still serving us very well today. I agree with you 100%. Oh, well, thank you, Art. Thank you. I appreciate you taking time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule. It was a pleasure, Art. It's, it's just absolutely wonderful to, to see you, even though it's virtually, and uh, uh, talk with you today because you're one of my favorite people always. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and I thank you for taking time to do this. And you know how much I appreciate you and Santos. So 
you know, I, I and then felt the support over 29 years. I, I always appreciate that. You know that that's why I reached out. I'm like, well, I know once I'm ready for Sharon that she will she will say yes and she will be a fantastic guest. And you are and you were. And I really appreciate it. So oh, thank, thank you, you so and much. say hi to Sancho. Thanks again to our sponsor, I Love Real Estate School. Thanks for tuning in to the Real Estate Roundtable podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our amazing guest and you picked up some valuable tips and insights that you can use in your own real estate business. If you liked what you heard today, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. Your support means the world to us and helps us bring you more great content in the future. And if you're an agent who's interested in coaching, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me directly through my website, myrealestatesalesmanager.com or connect with me on social media. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you the next time in the Real Estate Roundtable Podcast.